Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here, and it's uh, wonderful to have you with us today. You know, up here, I have a copy of Pride and Prejudice, the classic novel by Jane Austen, or sort of. I uh, found this version at Lifeline a few months ago. I bought it for my daughter. She actually, uh, she was in the earlier service, and she said to me between services, Dad, make sure you bring my book home. Now, the novel Pride and Prejudice has over 400 pages. This version attempts to tell the story in 12 words. Now, if you've uh, seen the movie or if you've read the book, let me read it to you to see if they do uh, a good job. Here we go. You didn't think you'd get a kid's book read to you at church today, did you? Friends. Sisters. Dance. Mean. Sick. Muddy. Yes. No. Right. Read. Walk. How's it going to end? Marry. <laughs> I think they did a pretty good job. There you go. If you haven't read Pride and Prejudice, you don't need to. Now, the reason I've read a children's book to you in church is because over the last 10 weeks, we have been in a sermon series, and this is kind of what we've been trying to do for the Bible. Now, the Bible is a big book, more than 400 pages, but we've attempted to tell the story of the Bible using nine words to see the big picture of how the Bible fits together. So we began way back nine weeks ago with creation, fall, promise, exodus, kingdom, exile, Messiah, mission last week, and then today we come to new creation. Because today we come full circle and we come to the end of the Bible and to the end of our series. But it's not really the end, is it? I mean, it's the end of the book, but it's not the end of the story. In fact, the story is really just beginning. This is why the title for this week's sermon is New Creation, because we are looking at something new, something glorious. It kind of reminds me of the way that uh, C.S. Lewis wraps up the Chronicles of Narnia series. On the final page, in the final book of that series, this is what he writes about the, the main characters. It's one of my favorite paragraphs in any book. He says, For them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter 1, of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I love that. And, and this is kind of the same for the Bible. We get to the end of the Bible and it's the beginning of the real story, the great story, the story that goes on forever and just gets better and better. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What's in store for us in the future? 
What does the Bible tell us about what is to come? Now, to answer this question, we're going to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, maybe just saying that gives some of us the spooks. I mean, Revelation has a reputation for being a bit weird, a bit strange, and very hard to understand. And it's usually assumed that if you're into the book of Revelation, you're a bit weird, a bit strange, and very hard to be around. Now, that's not always true or fair, because the truth is the book of Revelation can be hard to understand. It is filled with weird visions and strange events. And those who are really into the book of Revelation, well, it can be a little bit weird sometimes. But that's not because Revelation is a weird book that we need to avoid. It's actually because Revelation is written in a style that we're largely unfamiliar with. Revelation is what's known as apocalyptic literature. There's all different types of styles of literature in the Bible, narrative, history, poetry. Well, Revelation is apocalyptic. Now, the word apocalypse doesn't mean, biblically speaking, that the zombies are coming. It means simply to unveil, to reveal. This is why the book is called Revelation. God gives a man named John, one of Jesus' disciples, a series of visions in which God pulls back the curtain to reveal what's going on behind the scenes of human history, to reveal where human history is ultimately heading. And God doesn't do this to make us confused and so that we make lots of weird predictions about the future. God actually gives us this so that we would be encouraged to persevere in the present. I mean, this is actually what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not this secret code that we need to decipher with a secret message. It's actually a vision to fuel our faith. It's a vision of a glorious future to help us keep following Jesus faithfully in the present. It's a little bit like climbing a mountain. Now, I'm not a mountain climber myself, but I'm told that there is a moment that every mountain climber looks forward to when they're climbing a mountain. It's the moment called topping out. After you've kind of been struggling up the cliff face, after you've been working hard to get to the top of the mountain, it's that moment when your head finally pops over the horizon when you finally see the destination that you've been working towards. Now, what a moment it's going to be for us when after the struggles of life, after struggling through trial and suffering and temptation, when our head finally pops over the horizon and we see the vision of what we've been working towards. What a moment that will be to see Jesus face to face, to see the future that God has in store for those who love him. Today, we are going to explore this glorious future. And there's no better place in the Bible than Revelation 21 and 22. These chapters paint a picture for us of our glorious future. And I'd like to point out just four things that we see in these chapters about our future. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. It's our future is a renewed creation. Our future is a renewed creation. Here's how chapter 21 begins in verse 1. Then I saw, this is John writing, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, the language here should remind you of something. It is deliberately echoing Genesis 1 verse 1, the way the Bible begins. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's just a way of saying, in the beginning, God created everything. Now, John is saying something similar here, that at the end, God will recreate everything. That God will make everything new. A new heavens and a new earth. Now, the question is, well, in what sense will it be new? What does it mean that it's a, a new heaven and a new earth? Well, the New Testament was written in Greek, and there are actually two Greek words for the word new. There's the word neos, which means totally new, brand new. And then there's the word kainos, which means renewed or restored. It's kind of like the difference between demolishing an old home to build a new home or renovating an existing home to make it better. Well, the word here in Revelation 21 is kainos, restored, renewed. It's telling us that our universe will not be blown up and discarded. Our universe will be renewed, restored. This is actually why, I don't know if you notice this, it's subtle, but in verse 5, Jesus doesn't say from the throne, behold, I am making all new things. He says, I am making all things new. Our future home is not in a distant galaxy far, far away. Our future home is not wearing nappies in the clouds playing harps. Our future home is not even purely spiritual. Our future home is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Our future home is planet earth washed clean and upgraded. It's like a return to the Garden of Eden, but just way better. In fact, did you notice in our second reading in chapter 22 that there was a return of the tree of life? That's what we read in verse 2. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, we haven't seen that tree since Genesis 2 when we lost access to it after the fall. But now it's back as if to say our human story, which began in a beautiful world, filled with God's presence, filled with God's goodness, despite all the chaos and the devastation in between, our future world will be a return to this beautiful creation, to this beautiful world that God has made. Paradise was lost, but it will be regained. And this is why John's vision of the future, it includes trees and mountains and rivers and fruit. Now, maybe for the perceptive reader or listener, you're wondering, yeah, but what about the sea? Didn't John say that there'll be no more sea? I mean, what's with that? Does God not like the beach? Well, the answer is not quite. He made it. But you see, in the Bible, the sea is an image for chaos. You'll often see when the sea comes up in the narrative, it's something chaotic. For example, in Revelation 13, the beast emerges from the ocean. And so when John says there'll be no more sea, he's saying there'll be no more chaos. There'll be no more natural disasters. There'll be no more freak accidents. There'll be no more floods. There'll be no more oil spills. There'll be no more erosion. There'll be no more earthquakes. No more pollution. No more corruption. No more traffic jams. No more cats. 
just kidding, just kidding. I'm going to get more emails for that. <laughs> Don't know why I do it to myself. Although, you know, Satan is described as a roaring lion, and it doesn't end well for him, so, you know, maybe there's something to it. My point is there'll be nothing to disrupt the harmony of God's good world. A future in God's pristine creation. And so let me say this to you. If you don't make it to every destination on your bucket list, if you don't get to visit every single place that you would like to in this life, if you don't get to have every experience that you would like to have in this life, you don't have to worry. You're not going to miss out. You will have eternity to explore God's good creation. And it will be far greater than what we experience now. In fact, even the very best of our current experiences, they will seem dull in comparison to the future that God has in store for his people. I love the way, again, C.S. Lewis puts it in his writings. He says, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. Listen to this. But all the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Our future is a renewed creation. It's also resurrected bodies. If God will not obliterate the physical world that he has made, then it's also true that God will not obliterate the physical bodies that he has given to us. And we know this is true because we get a glimpse of our future bodies in the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus himself. The Bible says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. When Christ appears, the resurrected Jesus, we shall be like him. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, it was pretty clear that he was the same person. He had the scars to prove it. Remember, he showed his scars to Thomas. It's also pretty clear that Jesus was a physical person. Remember, he sat on the beach with his disciples, and he cooked breakfast, and he ate fish. Now, even when they kind of accused him of being a ghost, this is what Jesus said in response. He said, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. The resurrected Jesus was the same person, and he was a physical person. But he was also different somehow. There were times when his friends struggled to recognize him. There were even occasions when he walked through locked doors as if they were like mist. See, he was the same person, he was a physical person, but he was also transformed, glorified. And we too will be raised in resurrection bodies like his. We too will be flesh and bones, but transformed glorified. We will eat food with friends. We will enjoy the good things in life, but without pain, without decay, and without limitations. This is what John says in verse 4, chapter 21. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more funeral announcements, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now we're so used to to pain and, and to these frail bodies of ours. 
Now, you might say, well, I don't know what you're talking about, Adam. Speak for yourself. Nothing frail about my gun show. Maybe. Just give it time. See, we all get sick. We all get older. We wrestle with disease and disability. We experience decay and degeneration. We lose our ability to run and to jump and to lift. And we're so used to this, we think it's normal, but the Bible is telling us it's not. That these things are actually symptoms of death. That they're part of the old order, which is passing away. And there is a day coming in the future when we will be given new resurrected bodies. It'll be us, but better, glorified. We won't get sick or injured or depleted. There'll be no more cancer or colds or surgery. There'll be no more back aches or stomach aches or any kind of ache. Whatever your physical body is like now, you have the hope of a new body in the future. As you know, last Sunday afternoon, I sat beside the hospital bed of after Hawaii. And then on Tuesday at lunchtime, I, I sat beside the hospital bed of Graham Murphy. And both their bodies were frail and failing. They were struggling to, to breathe and to talk. And it's tempting in those moments when, when we look at our loved ones like this to think that their best days are behind them. That they're merely a shadow of their former self. But actually, if their faith is in Jesus, as was the case for after and for Graham, then their best days are ahead of them. They're actually just a shadow of their future self. Because there's a day coming when we shall see him and we shall be like him. We will be raised incorruptible, imperishable, glorious. Look at this promise in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Our glorious future is in a renewed creation, with resurrected bodies, and thirdly, it is reunion with God and with His people. You know, even the very best reunions in this life, they're a pale comparison to that reunion in the future, when God will dwell with His people, when heaven and earth will be joined together. This is what we see happening in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, a city? I thought we were talking about a garden. I thought we were talking about a a, a pristine creation. And of course, we are, but now John expands the picture even further. And he's telling us that in this new creation, we won't be hermits living all over the countryside. We won't be isolated from everyone else. We'll actually live in community with one another. We'll enjoy relationship with one another. This is kind of what the imagery of the city is communicating to us. 
Now, this is hard for us to imagine because let's be honest, most cities in our world, though there's lots of good things about them, they tend to be places of crime and pollution and poverty and injustice. But this city will be different because this city is not from us. This city is from above. This city has stamped on it, made in heaven. Look at what we read a little later in chapter 21 about this city. The city does not need the sun or or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. The front door won't be locked, because there'll be nothing to worry about. For there will be no night there. You see, this city will be safe and it will be glorious. There'll be no vomit on the sidewalk. There'll be no dark alleys. There'll be no shady characters. The Brisbane River will be clear. We'll have nothing to worry about. We'll live alongside one another in perfect relationships. We'll also live alongside one another in purposeful relationships. You might wonder, what what are we going to do? Well, spoiler alert, we're not going to sit around doing nothing. I mean, it might sound appealing, the idea of an eternal holiday. Sit on the deck chair, good book, cold drink, you know, for all eternity. But God created us for more. God created us to create, to work, to do things, to build things, to cultivate things. You know, work was actually part of God's purpose for us before the fall in Genesis chapter 2. Now, some of us, of course, are going to have to find a new job. Me, for example. I'm going to be out of work. Jesus will be around. You won't need me. Others, you know, lawyers, policemen, politicians, locksmiths. We're all going to be together in the unemployment line. See, the point is we're not going to sit around twiddling our thumbs. We will do meaningful, satisfying work without frustration. Here's the way uh, Andrew Ollerton puts it. He says, together we will live in safety and work in harmony. Human society and the natural world will form one sustainable ecosystem. Together we will cultivate a beautiful world that we can call But here's the thing, it will only truly be home because God will be there. This is what John goes on to say in verse 3. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, right now, we can enjoy relationship with God. We can be united to Christ. We can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a wonderful blessing. But on this side of eternity, there is still a limit to our intimacy with God. We can still, at times, times feel distant from God. But there is a day coming when it won't be this way. Heaven and earth will be reunited God will dwell with his people. There'll be no barriers, no separation, no distance. In fact, the whole earth will be God's temple. You know, the measurements of this city are given a little bit later in the chapter, and the measurements form a perfect cube. 
a massive cube, but a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's presence dwelt. And the point is the whole earth will be God's temple. There's not going to be a special building where you need to go to to get in touch with God. The whole earth will be where God dwells. And listen, if you are a Christian, this is what you long for. To see Christ face to face. To dwell with God forever. I mean, this is what makes heaven heaven. I mean, all the, the, the beautiful world that we get to enjoy and going snowboarding and cultivating gardens, that's all wonderful. But heaven is heaven because God is there. And this is our future, a renewed creation, resurrected bodies, reunion with God and with his people. It's pretty glorious. This is what we're going to see when we top out. And I guess the question is, how do I know that this future will be my future? How do I know that this is what I'll see when my head goes over that horizon? And this brings us to one final truth that we see in these chapters regarding the future. And it's rebellion removed. You see, the future I've just described, God dwelling with his people in his place forever, it's only possible if God deals with our rebellion. It's only possible if God puts an end to our rebellion if he deals with the sin that has entangled our hearts, the evil that has plagued our world ever since Genesis 3. And this is exactly what God will do at the end. Because what we see is that when Christ returns, there'll be a day of reckoning. There'll be a day of judgment. Now, to many in our day, this sounds like an old-fashioned idea, an archaic idea, even an offensive idea. But for the throng in Revelation, this is actually a reason to rejoice. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For just, for true and just are His judgments. They are rejoicing because God will do what is right. God will bring justice. And this is what we all want deep down. It's what we all long for. I mean, which one of us wouldn't want human trafficking to come to an end? People being bought and sold into slavery. Which one of us wouldn't want domestic and family violence to come to an end? Or corruption in government or or any other horrific things that plague our world. We long for justice to be done. But the reason we squirm when it comes to judgment, the reason that we chafe against the idea of God's judgment, is because we know that we too are implicated. It's because we know that our record is not clean. In fact, we utterly dread the scene that we read in Revelation chapter 20. But John writes, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, these heavenly books that are opened, they symbolize an exhaustive record of our actions. Things done both in public and in private. Both in secret 
and in the light. And those things that are in the darkness will be brought into the light. No one will get away with anything. A perfect judge will deliver perfect justice. And friends, this is terrifying for us. I mean, who could possibly endure this judgment? Who of us could possibly stand under that scrutiny? And the answer that every single one of us knows is no one. None of us could stand on our own before this judgment. We are utterly deserving of God's judgment. We're utterly lost on our own. But what we've seen right throughout the Bible, from beginning and now right to the end, is that we're not on our own. That we don't have to stand before the judgment seat on our own. That we will not face it alone. See, did you notice that there was a second book in that vision? The book of life. This is a clue that helps bring hope to the guilty. See, the only way to endure this judgment is to have our names written in the book of life. And the question is, well, how do you get your name written into that book? Well, do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The whole sky turned black. Now, why did Jesus feel abandoned? Why did the sky turn dark? It's because on the cross, Jesus experienced the judgment that you and I deserve. Jesus died our death. Jesus bore our sins. Jesus paid our penalty. Jesus got what you and I deserve so that he can give us what we don't deserve. Total forgiveness of our sins. Our sins removed from us as far as the east from the west, buried in the bottom of the ocean, past, present, and future, public and private. Jesus paid it all. And this means, long before we arrive at Judgment Day, Jesus has endured judgment on our behalf. If you are a believer in Jesus, the cross was your judgment day. This is why Jesus could promise in John chapter 5, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life and will not be judged. It's like if you're in the bush and a bushfire is coming, one way to survive is to actually burn and start another fire, burn a patch of bush around yourself. Why? Because when that fire comes, it cannot burn what has already been burned. And you see, if you are united to Christ by faith, you are standing in the one place in the universe where God's judgment has already been poured out. And the coming fire will not harm you. And this means the day of judgment for the Christian, or really every day, is a day of grace. It's a day not to dread, but to look forward to. And it means that you can now live your life courageously, confidently. You can make sacrifices. You can take risks. You can love others wholeheartedly. You can serve sacrificially. You can give generously. You can persevere through suffering and trials. You can even face death with hope. The same way that Arthur and Graham were able to face death. The same way that Jordan Coughlin 
is able to face it. You know, we're going to sing a song in just a moment as we close our service called Christ, Our Hope in Life and in Death. And Jordan Kaufman was one of the songwriters of this song. And he says the words have been so meaningful for him and his family in the last few years. Their 14-year-old son, Jack, has leukemia. And Jordan says, as we've gone through this stormy trial, to be able to sing, hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. He says it's been such a comfort for him and to his family. And the same is true for you and for me. We can sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal, because Christ is our hope in life and in death. And this is where the story of the Bible leads us. In fact, if we think about those three ingredients that we've been tracing through the storyline of the Bible, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, we get to the end and they are gloriously fulfilled. God's people, all those who trust in Jesus, are living in God's place, the new creation, and they are living under God's rule and blessing, dwelling with God forever. That's the pattern that begins in Genesis 1 and 2, and that's the pattern that is fulfilled at the end of the Bible. But it's not really the end, is it? Because it's just the beginning of the story that is greater than any other story and that goes on forever and ever. And so I can't think of any better way to finish this series, to end this series the same way the Bible ends, with an invitation come to Christ and to drink deeply. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Amen. Father, we thank you for the grace that you so freely have given to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. From beginning to end, the Bible tells us that we are not alone, that you are with us, that you have rescued us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, that none of us can even imagine what you have in store for those who love you. So we ask and we pray that your grace and this hope would fill us, would move us to keep following Jesus faithfully to the end, to have our eyes fixed on him until that day when we top out, when our head comes above the horizon see what we've been striving for, working towards, when we see you, Jesus, face to face. And we pray this in your gracious name. Amen.